Hello and welcome to the Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got an amazing guest as always. Our guest today is on a mission to educate and transform people's views on cancer and today's ineffective healthcare system. He is the author of Tripping Over the Truth, Ketones, The Fourth Fuel, and Curable. Welcome to the show, Travis Christofferson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, David. Now, your books are absolutely amazing. Uh, what started you down this journey and into this rabbit hole of uh, cancer treatments and the healthcare system? You know, it's it's pretty nonlinear path. I, I I was actually I was doing um, an independent study class for my master's degree, and they gave me the latitude to kind of pick a topic. And I just happened to be thumbing through Kindle and found this book called "Cancers and Metabolic Disease" by Tom Seyfried, and I almost didn't buy it. it was but I, I finally bought it and just was absolutely blown away by the amount of data going back hundreds of years supporting sort of an alternative view of what cancer is. And, you know, I was, my undergrad was biochemistry, so I was taught in textbooks like everybody else that cancer is a, um, a somatic mutation theory, that cancer is a disease of genetic mutations. And so it was mm. just so eye-popping to read this account. And, um, he had obviously written the textbook. And so for me, it was such a beautiful story of redemption with this um, scientist in the 1920s out of Warburg that um, just lended itself really well to a, to a story, you know, to a novel like book. Yeah. Nice. Now you've started reading this. Um, what were kind of your thoughts then with, uh, with the direction cancer has gone then and with what you were reading with all this data that was, um, posted back, oh, going back decades, if not even longer, correct? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a truly fascinating story because in the 1920s, this German scientist who's, uh, you know, high, the most highly regarded biochemist of the 20th century, he's won a Nobel Prize, he was nominated for two others. He made this striking observation that cancer has this metabolic, dramatic metabolic abnormality where it consumes glucose in the presence of oxygen and generates energy by this process we call fermentation. Mm. Um, and, and typically normal cells will use what we call respiration, which is gen the generation of energy with, with oxygen. And so he couldn't come to terms with why the cancer cell was doing this. But as his career went on, he, he found enough evidence where he was confident to claim that this was a prime cause of cancer. But then if you look at the way sort of molecular biology and history unfolded. DNA was discovered in the mid fifties. This sent a whole generation of biologists looking at the genome. It was known there was mutations in the cancer, in the, in cancer cells. And so this really caused the focus to, to cement this idea that cancer was caused by genetic mutations. And then there was okay. a, series, a series of experiments in the 1970s that really locked this down. They showed that it was always, it was always unknown how viruses cause cancer. That was kind of an outlier. And this series of experiments showed that vi this certain virus called the RSV virus, I'm sorry, the, the Rouse sarcoma virus, had, four, had a genome with four genes. One of its gene was a gene that we already had that was slightly mutated. So when this virus inserted this gene, it, it kicked off cancer. And that cemented this idea that genes that we already have called proto-oncogenes, when they're 
acted upon by a carcinogen or random you know mistakes in, in cellular replication they turn into oncogenes which kicks off this process of cancer and this ushered in this idea of targeted therapy it was thought the cancer would be cured within within you know at least a decade at the most and as we all know that, that that's been an extraordinarily underwhelming um, therapeutic approach and that led to this revival of this these new ideas of cancer and one of these ideas of cancer is is back to this idea of metabolism that is caused by metabolic defects that center on the mitochondria. The mitochondria get jam- damaged, and mitochondria are the, are the center where your, your cells generate energy with oxygen. Once they become damaged, they initiate this sort of epigenetic crosstalk to the nucleus, which completely changes the complexion of the cell and kicks it off towards this, this uncontrolled growth. And, you know, it, it's been... It, 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 science at this level, it, it moves so glacially slow and it's, it's right. got so much inertia. So many, so many people's careers and papers and publications are cemented by the original theories that it just takes, it takes a colossal amount of time to redirect it and change it. Right. Now, what are kind of some of these barriers you've come across then uh, with obviously being behind this theory that isn't the mainstream theory at this point in time. Um, what kind of kickback or things have you heard directed towards yourself then about it? You know, I haven't, I have not heard anything. I, I think for the most part, I, I think there's become, there, there's been a realization in the traditional, I guess what you call traditional um, oncology community where, where we always said cancer was a somatic mutation disease, that this is not, a comprehensive explanation for cancer. And a lot of that comes from the, the, the genome project that was kicked off in 2005 that were really thought to be the, you know, the sort of the Manhattan project for cancer is going to be the final, uh, the final thing we had to do to truly understand this disease from A to Z. And if cancer is caused by genetic mutations, they sort of rewire the cell towards all the hallmark features of cancer, un, unbridled growth, immune evasion, all these things then we would be able to find those. And when sequencing technology after the Human Genome Project was good enough to do that, this project kicked off in 2005 called the Cancer Genome Atlas. And it was largely suspected we would find sort of a tidy series of mutations that define each type of cancer. And clinicians, you know, the observations of clinicians led up to this for for years in the 80s and 90s. You would notice that cancer, like specifically cervical and and, uh, colon cancer, would go these go through these sort of defined clinical steps. And it was thought that each one of these steps would be underpinned by a specific mutation. So that's what they thought they'd see. When they finally started sequencing the genomes, it was absolute chaos. There was just a, a un, unprecedented number of mutations. Most of them we could make no sense of. And what we call driving mutations, the one you can make sense of that we think are required to click, kick off the disease, you wouldn't find any sort of um, commonality or any consistency from one patient's tumor to the next. That's that the measure of that is called inter, intertumoral heterogeneity. So one person might have, you know, mutations in A, B, and C gene. Another might have it in D, Z, and Y. And so this this just so most you know most of the researchers looking at this have a real hard time making sense out of this complexity. And it's I think it's widely accepted that. We just don't know. And one of the largest 
you know, most prominent cancer biologists in the world, Bert Vogelstein, he asked this question in 2013 review, how do we make sense out of this question? How do we make sense out of this complexity and where are the missing mutations? Because you can find tumors with one driving mutation. You can find tumors with zero. Hmm. Yet, it, yet it has all the histological, you know, exactly the same as a normal cancer. So I think it's accepted. And I think these, so there's sort of in this wake, there's a reshuffling and there's people that are trying to understand this from a new level. And that's where Tom's theory comes in, this idea that metabolism could be behind it. And I think in my mind, the best way you can characterize cancer now is it is better described as a disease of metabolism and epigenetics than it is of genetic mutations. Excellent. Now, with this as well, didn't they go into that a lot of these mutations are happening after the fact that the fermentation process has taken place? Yeah, yeah. That, that's sort of the heart of the theory, right? So if cancer is caused by damage to mitochondria first, and then this kicks off this series of events that leads to cancer, then w what happens in that process is it takes a lot of energy to guard the genome. There's hundreds of, of enzymes devoted to repairing the genome, and they do it, do it you know, extremely well. It's very hard to find somatic mutations in healthy people. And so once you lose that energy production, you, your, your cell loses the ability to repair the DNA effectively. And also because the mitochondria are damaged, they kick out what we call free radicals. I'm sure people have, you know, understand that. Um, and free radicals damage the genome. So... It, it, you know, it's a very important point. What what events happen first? Because if it's the, the damage to mitochondria and then you start to see somatic mutations, then, you know, the disease prime cause is met metabolic and the, these mutations are really a red herring. They're an epiphenomenon. Right. Absolutely. So what would be some of these things causing the damage and mutations then are... Um, the metabolic processes going wrong with the mitochondria. What are the multitude of things that we've found so far about that? Yeah, well, that's where that's why this has been so hard to untangle because the same things that damage nuclear DNA damage mitochondria. So um, radiation, chemical carcinogens, viruses. A lot of viruses can you know sort of center their pathological process in the mitochondria. Um, so that's really covered the two theories up and made them really difficult to untangle. But yeah, the same, the same toxins we get exposed to that we know are cause cancer um, also damage mitochondria. We had hints. What was really astonishing is when you look back through the literature in the 1940s, there was this brilliant English geneticist that found if you gave cells enough radiation to damage just so really a low dose, so they could damage nuclear DNA, you didn't get cancer. It didn't transform the hmm. cells. But if you up the dose to where it could also damage mitochondria, then you begin to see cancer. So there was sort of these data points that would lead you to towards the metabolic theory, but there was just too much inertia with the somatic mutation theory. Right. Now, you also kind of went in with when mitochondria gets damaged, then you get an increase in reactive oxygen species. Um, basically, things that are going to go around and damage more things. Um, can you go into basically how the metabolic processes, reactive oxygen species, and the immune system are all intertwined together? 
yeah, they're, they're, they're incredibly intertwined. And, you know, I, I think when you look at cancer rates, right, they, they've, we've gotten somewhat better at treating cancer, but the rates have gone up. So somehow we made our, our lives more carcinogenic. What are we doing wrong? And when you look at those rates, they really do track this rise of obesity in the general population. Um, and when you look at, when you look at what happens, you know, when people begin to get insulin, begin to get insulin resistant and that leads to obesity, it, it's really a metabolic disaster. Their body stopped responding to insulin. And this just wreaks havoc on metabolism. Your, your mitochondria don't work as well. There's much more ROS that leads to inflammation. It's just a sort of outward cascading of effects. You know, scientists really couldn't reconcile why would obesity lead to higher cancer rates? But when you look at it through this metabolic lens, it all starts to make sense, you know, especially in the context of insulin and IGF-1, where when you're constantly feeding yourself, overfeeding, especially with too much carbohydrates, your insulin levels are always spiked. And insulin is a very anabolic pro, pro, um, hormone that's telling your cells to divide. So you're really setting the stage for this damage to occur and your, your cell to be getting these signals to start dividing. So it's kind of a collision of a lot of you know, lifestyle factors that center on metabolism that have um, sort of make sense of these cancer rates. So basically, this is going to shift the paradigm a lot and probably be uncomfortable for a lot of people that cancer isn't something that happens to us. It's something that eventually we produce in our, ourselves then, correct? To a large degree, yeah. And of course, you know, there's going to be there's always going to be exceptions to that. You can do everything perfectly in your life and, and you may. Are you ready to take your brain health to a brand new higher level than ever before? Then please check out the hardybrain.ca and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs. That you can do everything perfectly in your life and, and you may, you know, you, you can end up with cancer and, and right. that's just the way life is, it's complex. But, but as far as statistical probabilities go, yeah, you are, you are, have a lot of control. I think the NCI um, estimated that 50% of all cancers are lifestyle driven. So, so right. where we didn't think we had control before, because we thought this, it was this random process of chemical carcinogens and even, you know, inborn errors from cell replication, the cancer was a result of mostly bad luck. We now know better that it really is, you know, lifestyle has a lot of control. There's, there's some kind of interesting real world experiments with that. There's a group of people with something called Lorenz syndrome that live in the mountains in Ecuador. And so okay. they have a mutation in the IGF-1 receptor. So IGF-1 is extremely close to insulin. They're both these very anabolic proteins that are influenced by diet. And so they can't respond to IGF-1. So they, they're very, they have dwarfism. So they they grow to a very short statute, but they're almost immune to diabetes and cancer. Wow. And when researchers went into this population, you know, they found they had a horrific lifestyle. They, they were overeating tons of sugar, bad diets, smoking rates were really high but you almost couldn't find a single case of cancer, no matter how hard you looked or type two diabetes. So, you know, this is a very potent clue that we know that something, you know, with our Western lifestyles, with our modern lifestyles is promoting this disease. 
So some people will probably go into, well, why don't we just gene edit ourselves then? Uh, <laughs> what are some downfalls of not having this IGF-1 then? Well, maybe in the future, yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, we just edit out that gene and not worry about anything. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. So, <laughs> Right, yeah. Um, you really hit on something really important, though, and I think this is the biggest take home from the metabolic theory is control. And if we realize that we do have control over some of these situations, if not most of them, then how do you see that kind of empowering people? And what have you heard from the people that, that give you feedback on, on the book and uh, how you've helped them out then? We hear it all the time. You know, I, I stay in touch with Thomas Seyfried all the time. I have a research foundation where we, you know, the book, after I wrote it in 2014, you realize that most of these therapies are free. And so they're not going to get funded by NCI grants or pharmaceutical companies because they're non-patentable and they're wow. dietary. You just yeah. said free on this. Um. <laughs> right, right. Well, one of the things we look at the most is, is you know, the sort of low-hanging fruit when you look at this from a therapeutic lens is something called a ketogenic diet where this, this, this metabolic defect that Warburg noticed years ago is that cancer is consuming glucose at a crazy rate, 10 times that of normal cells. So that's how wow. they're feeding their growth. So, so how do we restrict blood glucose? And there's a simple way to do that through a ketogenic diet where you reduce carbohydrates, increase fat, your body switches metabolism from carbohydrate based to ketone based, which is just these small molecules generated from burning fat. And that replaces blood glucose largely. So that is cotton on, you know, that that's, there's a lot of people that have, have done ketogenic diets with cancer. And, you know, Tom and I talk to them all the time and many of them are defying the odds, you know, until we get a really well done study, we can't say definitively how, what this effect is, but there's been phase one studies on glioblastoma. And we saw about what we from expect from normal historic controls. We saw about a doubling of lifespan. And this wow. is a crazy aggressive form of brain cancer where people from the point of diagnosis, it's about 15 months is immediate lifespan. So that has encouraged us enough. When I first started this, I couldn't get anybody to be interested, but now there's you know, neuro-oncologists are noticing this, their patients are coming in on this diet and they're noticing the effects. So we have a, a PI at Cedar sinai a young neuro-oncologist that's going to do a phase two study, the largest study to date on the ketogenic diet and brain cancer. It'll be at five different centers. I think we're going to recruit about a hundred patients. So that should be a definitive answer. And, you know, if we do these at these top-notch institutions, do the science extremely carefully and well, there's no reason that other oncologists and people can't, you know, won't, won't notice it more. Absolutely. Now with the keto diet, is this just with the keto diet or has there been other kind of therapies mixed in with it in some of these cases, or are you noticing it just having that doubling effect in lifespan only with the keto diet? Just the keto diet. And that, wow. that's, that's adjunctive to standard of care. So they're doing the ketogenic diet while they're getting traditional standard of care. And what makes it so unique is, is that the ketogenic diet, what it does is it makes healthy cells more healthy. So they're able to withstand the side effects of, of chemotherapy and radiation much, much better. And that's been measured objectively. Then at the same time, because cancer cells 
have this voracious appetite for sugar and they can't burn ketones very well because their mitochondria are dysfunctional, they're mm. put in this weakened state. So then when you do come in with radiation and chemotherapy, they die sooner, they die easier. Oh. So it's kind of this beautiful, beautiful therapeutic differential between normal cells and cancer cells that you don't see in traditional, you know, the cancer therapies we're used to are just systemically toxic. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, you mentioned glioblastoma being a very aggressive one and very aggressive cancer. Um, do you think with this, um, partly is that we're looking at the diagnosis very far into the disease process already? That if we were to look at the factors that happened before, then we'd probably be able to <laughs> do a lot better than, than we are even with the doubling of lifespan with this. Yeah. That, well, that's what gets me excited is, is, you know, when you are involved in cancer long enough, all roads lead to prevention mm. because once you get to these stage four cancers, it's almost like a different disease. It's so hard to, they're just very intractable. They're hard to treat. So right. it leads you to this idea of prevention. How do you prevent this from occurring in the first place? And again, it takes us back to all these lifestyle, you know, that's the low hanging fruit. Again, if you can keep your insulin low, if you can keep your blood sugar steady, if you can keep your mitochondria healthy and your free, you know, the free radicals um, tame, then your chance of developing cancer is just astonishingly reduced. And another very fascinating fact about ketones from the ketogenic diet is when you look at free radicals specifically, we everyone talks about antioxidants. And so there's been this, you know, for decades, this idea, well, eat more antioxidants. And right. this is never proven to be efficacious. So when you eat antioxidants, first of all, you don't quite know where they're going to go in the cell. Number two, you may be able to increase the intercellular pool of antioxidants, but that doesn't do much because once they take on a free radical and antioxidant, now what? It has to be recycled. And the only way right. to recycle that is through uh, this molecule called NADPH and it takes that electron and then disposes of it. And then it's like a vacuum cleaner that's sucking them up. So the only way to the, that I know and other biochemists know that to increase the NADPH is through, through ketosis, ketones, they, they dramatically increase the ability of the cell to mop up free radicals. And one unpublished experiment, just to give you sort of a quantification of that is you can give mice, what we call LD70. So it's a dose of radiation that kills 70% of the mice, lethal dose 70%. Wow. So, and then if you give, if you give the, the treatment group of mice the same dose, dose of radiation, but you give them exogenous ketones, so just a ketone supplement, none of the mice died. So it, wow. it's, it's got this truly you know, astonishing effect on, on free radicals. Yeah, that's absolutely mind blowing there. And um, you've written another book just on, on ketones as the fourth fuel here. And uh, basically, how often do you kind of recommend or have you seen um, that we should be on a ketogenic diet versus letting more sugars into our diet and, and just the, well, I've heard of the inefficiency of exogenous ketones versus the ones we actually produce. So yeah, going yeah. back to um, that last study you just mentioned, uh, uh, there's so much more room for improvement if we 
uh, dive a little deeper into these ketones then. So I'll just let you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the million dollar question. And, and we don't know, you know, we don't know right. what I think I can say um, confidently is that we were probably supposed to be in ketosis for a certain percentage of our lifespan. Right. And we've been completely kicked out of that because of, you know, just the way our food supply has developed throughout our, throughout human evolution. 10,000 years ago, modern a- agriculture was invented. And since then, we've had cheap carbohydrates, you know, which is, is a good thing for humanity because it was an easy source of food and people were starving before that. But it's also put it sort of uncoupled us from the physiology that perhaps is more optimal for us. Right. So the question, how often is a ketogenic diet, you know, that somebody sustains for years, is that the best thing to do? I don't think anybody can answer that definitively. You know, there's been this sort of um, huge sort of uh, popularity in fasting lately. Right. And, and people, you know, anecdotally, when people do it, they say they have more mental clarity, they feel better. Um, and that's just the quickest way to kick yourself into ketosis. If you do a 24 or 48 hour fast, you will start to, you know, you burn all your carbohydrate reserves and you will start to generate ketones and go into ketosis. So I think people catch on, maybe the clinical studies will come out to where we can say, okay, do this set protocol and you'll be optimally healthy. But we, we just don't know the answer to that yet. Right. Absolutely. Now in your life though, because yeah, everyone looking at you, see somebody who's fit, active, a lot of energy. Uh, what would be kind of your approach to your own diet and lifestyle then? Well, I think the easiest thing, you know, and the most obvious is, is just cut out the crap, cut out right. processed sugars, you know, and I think everybody knows that whether they can do it or not. It's, it's, I was just talking to my son about this. It's really interesting when you think about taste buds, why, yes. how do they evolve to, to where we just crave sugar and salt? And probably the reason is we just couldn't get it. And when we did find it, it was there was a, it's a, your body telling you to store up as much as you can, because all that influx of sugar and carbohydrates would go into fat storage. Now you'd have a little buffer for when times got hard. Same thing with salt. It was hard to come by. And so, you know, when you found it, you wanted to definitely store up. So, but that, that's tricked us, you know, it's, it's this double-edged sword where today we just, that's what our body is, is telling us we like, but it's just overconsumption that, um, has gotten us into trouble. So that, that's the low hanging fruit. If you can do that, absolutely, you're going to do come a long way towards health. But personally, you know, I do feel good. I'll do a 24 hour fast. Occasionally I eat low carbohydrate. Um, and I just feel, feel much better. Absolutely. That's amazing. Do you, do you also have seen then basically as it, these diets being seasonal as well then? Um, I always use the example, well, there's a reason mangoes don't grow in Canada. And, uh, right, right, right. right. Yeah. That, that during certain times of year, the energy obviously from the sun and our, our our food sources are going to be different and that we've evolved this way. Um, are you kind of seeing that with what you've seen with uh, the ketone research out there? I have not seen much about the seasonality, Hmm. you know, but it goes back to this sort of, overarching idea of, of you want to couple yourself as much to the, the way your physiology was evolved to be. And that makes perfect sense to me, right? We know, right. for example, artificial light, too much blue light is screwing up people's circadian rhythms. And mm. so that's, that's one of these 
ways that we become, become a couple. So I would not doubt at all if there's a seasonality effect to it, to where you could get, you know, if you truly want to optimize your health, you would kind of eat in season. And, you know, we know when you look at chimpanzees, it's fascinating. We always think of them as, as fruititarians. And there's right. a fruiting season where they gorge on fruit, but they're actually in ketosis for about eight months out of the year. So they ah. do go through that cycle you're talking about. Right. Um, yeah, I think most animals do, but we don't because we have grocery stores and <laughs> exactly <laughs> and absolutely food from anywhere in the world to us. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense that way. <laughs> now you mentioned electrons quite frequently, and uh, most people are going into basically the chemical side of metabolics and cancer, um, but we are dealing with electrons, so. What have you seen mainly kind of with the flow of electrons or energy in the body also associated with different cancers than more kind of the physics side of it or the electric chemical side? Yeah, you know, um, beyond the free radicals, there, there's not, I don't know of much beyond that. Um, you know, there is a constant flow of electrons in our, that's how we generate energy. And I'm sure there's a lot of physics that involved and things that we don't know about as far as sunlight and things like that. But it's what, you know, we're limited by what we can measure, how deep we can look into the cell right. and what I think the word energy gets sort of passed around um, haphazardly sometimes. I'd, I would I think, agree. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's just, there's a lot, you know, it took, it took an incredible amount of time to to really decipher how a cell generates energy. There was what we call the ox phosphors in the 60s and 70s, where um, every single biochemist except for one on the planet pretty much thought that the, the idea of the electron transport chain was insane. But right. in the end, he, he was vindicated as right. So, you know, you always keep in mind as a scientist that there's, at any given moment in the time, you think that we're at this modern point of science, but there's always going to be things that astonish us in the future. Absolutely. Now, in your book, though, you go into the history, basically, of how all these theories and the brilliant minds behind it sort of um, came up with these and how it became kind of entrenched within the metabolics, how it works, and then how this is theory is rooted in the, the basic kind of biochemistry we, we learn in, in university, uh, even before doctorate yeah. programs. Yeah. It's, it, the history is interesting because, you know, in the twenties, when Otto Warburg sort of is, you know, the, the heyday back then, and that was kind of largely considered the golden era of science. Um, Otto, for example, you know, Otto Warburg was in Germany and he, he didn't have to ask for grant. He had to ask for grant money one time in his life and he scribbled it on a napkin. He said, I Otto Warburg need like 3000 marks and he got it. Whereas today, you know, I think, American scientists spent about 60% of their time writing grant money. So it was this wow. golden era of science when they, when they sort of gave these guys that they deemed, you know, top notch, just unbridled resources to let their minds go. And, you know, we reap so much benefit from that. And th that was the era of biochemistry. It was really this un uncloaking of how, how does, how do we, from the food we eat, how does that get, redirected and transferred into all these life processes. It's the core of what a living organism is. But then, you know, in the, in the as I said, when the fifties, the when they discovered DNA, that just became so exciting because this code, now you have this blueprint to study that, that 
is, is you know, our alphabet that, that organizes all these molecules in the living organism. So all, all the resources shifted to that and biochemistry was kind of put on the back burner. Right. But now again, again, there's this resurgence that we, we understand how connected the two are. They don't exist in isolation at all. The metabolism is constantly telling the genes how to be expressed. And that is actually more important than the code itself. You know, exactly. for example, yeah, we know that yeah. health and longevity, only about 20% of that is dictated by the genes that you inherit by your mom and dad. The 80%, the rest is dictated by everything else that happens to us. The, the stress levels, our diets, lifestyles, all those things that we call nurture. So there's been this sort of, you know, refocus back to biochemistry. And I think the, the epitome of that was, two, I think it was 2013, James Watson, who discovered DNA, said in a New York Times article, if he could go back, he wouldn't study genetics, he'd study biochemistry today. Right. So that kind of yeah. sums it up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So in essence, basically, when people started to discover maybe the recipe book, they forgot about all the ingredients that have to go into building something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They found the recipe book and that was just too exciting to read for a while. <laughs> right. But you still have to make it and do something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, in your recent book, uh, Curable, uh, you really dive into this uh, change in healthcare as well. Um, and you compare it to the movie Moneyball, the Brad Pitt movie about, about baseball. Uh, what are the commonalities here? How did you you find the the analogy or story to to compare? Yeah, the two? well, it's kind of got a, a you know a personal commonality too. My my dad's business partner was Dick Green, who was a, the second baseman for the Oakland A's when they won all those the three World Series in a row. And so I've always been an Oakland A's fan. And then when Billy Bean took over and started this concept of Moneyball, I was just fascinated by it. And and so the concept is simple. It's it's that traditionally baseball teams use talent scouts to pick players, right? And and they right. pick players based on all these internal biases and subjectivities that we call them experts. But when you, when, when they shifted their, their methodology to picking players purely on data and filed our talent scouts, they realized how flawed this talent scout system was. So the Oakland A's would hire players, you know, for dirt cheap that the data said they were good players. They might be, short, overweight, who knows why the talent, talent scouts were passing over, but they were these sort of undervalued gems that they'd pick up. And they, you know, they almost won their division. They had the, the best record in their division that year. Um, now it's been adopted by every team in baseball. So it's kind of smoothed out the effect. But then I, you look at that system and then you realize it's the exact same system that our healthcare system is stuck in, where we uh -huh. give this incredible autonomy to doctors and medicine used to be simple. Now it is grown in complexity to where it's outstripped this ethos that we can have doctors making these incredibly complex diagnostic decisions every day. They need help. They need help from, from big data. And right. so that was kind of the overarching theme of the book is how do these internal biases get embedded into our healthcare system where, you know, it, it's a mess. I mean, when you look at a chart of what we spend per capita in this country, in our lifespan versus other developed countries, it's, it's not even close, you know, so we're right. doing something severely wrong. And I, we we're good at fixing acute problems in medicine, but when it comes to the prevention of disease, the real thing that matters, people's health and longevity, we're, we're doing abysmally 
poorly. Now, do you think prevention is a swear word in these communities, though? I just think it's the I I don't think it's a swear word. I think it's (laughs) um, it's it's just the incentive structure does not align to where doctors should give a shit about prevention. (laughs) (laughs) Because yeah, you know, back surgery. You can look very clearly. Like back surgeons get paid to do back surgery. Yes. Increase the number of back surgeons in a county, the number of back surgeries per capita go up. So it's not being decided absolutely who needs back surgery. It's just that's their specialty. And then, you know, they see that problem and they have a hammer to fix it. So they'll go in. But, you know, as far as primary care, there's no incentive for people, for doctors, for medicine, pharmaceuticals to really try to keep people healthy. It's just not where, where the money flows. Right. Now, are you seeing any changes in the system with the conversations you've had then? Or is this something that's kind of at the point where it's uh, unfixable and kind of needs to blow up and start over again? Or what, what are kind of yeah. the approaches you've seen to healthcare reform, I guess? I, you know, there's people, as, as you learn more and, and these things come out, of course, people, interested, curious people get caught on and, and do try to make a change. But uh, there's so much inertia in the current system that I think you're right. I think you'll probably need some sort of crisis to where it has, you know, eventually has to be retooled. I mean, we're spending close to 20% of our GDP on healthcare. It's, it's clearly unsustainable. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah, and we've and, got this increasing aging and sick population at the same time. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's wow. in, in the cancer drugs, you know, they used to cost three, $4,000 when they came out. Now we're North of a hundred thousand per treatment. So it's just, Wow. And like CAR T therapy, I think the, f- the first iteration of that was about 200 and some grand for treatment. Jeez, that is just not sustainable. <laughs> sustainable. And, you know, you look at healthcare and, and we, so we were great at developing these fascinating new technologies like CAR T therapy for, for cancer, um, proton beam radiation, all these, all these amazing technologies. But then we forget the simple things like, like doctors hand washing, right? I mean, right. 2 million people get, get infections in the hospital and there's only 80, 80% compliance rate on hand washing. Surgical checklists, there's certain, you know, pre, you know, surgeons go through a certain series of things before surgery and they, they'll miss a lot of things. And when you make them adhere to a checklist, you drop the death rate from surgical complications by half. That's better than any drug a pharmaceutical company could, could invent and patent. So at the expense of all this incredible technology, we, we often forget these very simple things about healthcare that we don't do very well. Absolutely. And yeah, we could probably dive into kind of that incentive rabbit hole even more, but what's more important is the awareness that you're drawing towards such simple, maybe not easy um, for some people ways to, to really take control and empower their lives and, and hopefully not fear this, this C word. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, what is the work your foundation is doing and how do we find more information about your foundation and yourself then? The foundation is called, um, the foundation for metabolic cancer therapies and, it is doing so like I like I said earlier, we're gonna do this this five center multi-center trial on the ketogenic diet. So that's the big project we have coming up. And that took a long time. We're donating 
quite a bit of money. And then the NCI, they finally agreed, or the NIH finally um, approved the grant, which is kind of remarkable for them to approve a grant on a dietary therapy for a trial this size. Wow, so, you know, that is maybe, maybe things are changing a little more than I, you know, willing to admit, but yeah, that's exciting. And the foundation does work like that. It, it's extraordinarily, we run it insanely tight. We don't spend any money other than direct research grants. So all the money donors go, go beyond just a tiny bit of IT, maintaining the website, it goes directly to research. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing, amazing work. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Definitely check out the, the foundation there. And for everybody tuning in, stay tuned to the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care. 